Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, Leland Miller, a chief executive officer of China Beige Book International, has nailed it time and again Every when time. it comes to looking at preliminary data coming out of Chinese companies, non-official data, and estimating the increase or decrease in activity ahead of the official PMI data that we got out of China that was incredibly ugly, record weakness that we saw in the manufacturing sector. Leland Miller was saying that we were going to see a contraction in the Chinese economy in the first quarter. That seems almost to be an uncertainty. The question now is going forward, how quickly can China ramp back up production and get supply chains working again? Leland Miller joins us here at our interactive broker studios. So do you have a sense based on preliminary data, Leland, of how much we're seeing manufacturing come back online from China? Yeah, we're, we're seeing firms go back to work. We're seeing workers show up. So we're seeing a trend towards firms opening. But the question is, how productive are they Are they actually being? Um, you know, there's a, there's a real question about this. You know, when we break down the data to how many firms are open to how many are working in normal operations, the ratio is very low. Uh, it's better than it was two weeks ago. Uh, and we're, and we're, you know, we're tracking this data every single day as it comes in. But this is, China's not back to work yet. What we do know is that the, the Beijing has given us their bad data. That will be the low no matter what happens. An asteroid could hit Beijing at this point, and they're going to report better data going forward. And so the question is, how much of this going back to work will be a cover for rising PMIs and a, and a better GDP number and better industrial production number when the underlying reality doesn't, doesn't reflect that? And I think we're just waiting to see that because China's going back to work, but we don't know whether they're going back to growth. So is this literally, as I think about China going back to work, is it literally moving millions of people who are on their lunar holiday in their villages, back to the cities, back to the factories, and getting them working again? Is that kind of what we're talking about? That's a big chunk of it. So what we're seeing right now, in some cases, are buses being filled with migrant workers who are being driven with police escorts from certain cities back to where they're needed. Uh, Xi Jinping wants growth back at all costs. And so they are, they are going to restart factories come hell or high water. But the question is, again, is, you know, is this, are we back? You know, is, is this, is this going to stay this way? Are, are the firms going to be able to operate this way? Do they have the inputs to be able to build going forward? And none of this is clear at all yet. There was also a story that caught my attention about the potential to fudge data by having uh, factories actually run electricity without necessarily having the workers to do the work. Are you seeing anything? I mean, does that seem like a dominant type of development or just sort of a one-off uh, example? Yeah, well, it's very Chinese. Uh, look, the, <laughs> the Beijing has been doing things like this for years. And the reality is, and we've been warning people for years on this, electricity production is not a gauge of the Chinese economy. There's a lot of reasons for this, but the major reason is, is that as soon as you came out with the Li Keqiang index, uh, you know, a number of years ago, the Chinese understood people were using that as a barometer and they started manipulating the data. So what we've been trying to explain is that if you're out there using the Li Keqiang index thinking you've got a barometer on the economy, you're just listening to the Chinese story like any other piece of data. But this is actually really important because a lot of people have turned to soft data, satellite images, electricity production as a way to gauge the activity levels in China because they don't trust the official data. You're saying that this is also potentially fudged or being manipulated. What do you look at then for 
reliable gauge? Well, look, we, when we started trying to figure out different ways of tracking the economy, we went through all the different, you know, obviously official data is tainted, but then looking through all the sort of uh, private data sources, and what we found is that if you don't collect the data yourself and it's being used on a broad enough scale, the Chinese figure this out and they start manipulating it. You know, this is not some sort of conspiracy theory. It's very smart on, the, on, on, on Beijing's behalf. They want to make sure they control the narrative. So all these things, whether it's rail, rail cargo, whether it's electricity, whether it's, whether it's other bits of data, uh, they, you know, they want to control the narrative, which means they're going to control the data. And that's why we just got around to collecting it ourselves because we figured out unless you take Beijing out as the intermediary, you cannot trust the data, particularly in a crisis. All right. So let's talk about China slowly getting back to work. Give us a sense of how you think this might ramp here on the mid first quarter into second quarter and maybe the ultimate impact on 2020 GDP for China. Right. Well, so what the, the Chinese idea is to have everything bottom out in February and to have more workers come back in and be able to announce much better, uh, much better data in March and April and then have, if not a V, v recovery, maybe, but, but you know, just a, a nice steady recovery that shows the competence of the party. Uh, the problem is one, we don't know whether the outbreak has actually been contained. So there are medical issues that we can't, we, we, we can't understand yet. The second is this is now spreading around the world and that hits demand. So you have the, a lot, you know, you have a hit to demand domestically as well as a hit to production domestically. And then you have a hit to global demand. This is hitting tourism. This is hitting uh, all kinds of, of, uh, of, of companies that are the normal buyers of Chinese goods. And so the idea that they're going to have a bounce back in demand, I know that's what the narrative is. I know that's what they're aiming for. It, this now depends as much on what's happening outside of China as what's happening inside China. How low could growth go in China for 2020? Well, what will they announce? They won't announce a number less than say, you know, if we had a full-on global outbreak, they'll still announce 4% plus GDP. Uh, what could it go? Uh, look, I, I think that you could have Q1 contraction, you could have Q1 barely positive growth, and then you know, you're back you to your- I mean, Q2 no Q2 barely positive. Uh, barely positive growth, and then your normal numbers um, are, are probably around three at, at, at normal times. So, I mean, you could have one or 2% growth for the year if things were really bad. The Chinese would never announce that. But the reality is, if things got much worse, you could see, you could see growth under 2%, certainly. How much of a problem, if at all, is this crisis for President Xi? He's he's having a rough, yeah. <laughs> rough year Hong or two. And, yeah. yeah, like Hong Kong and trade war and and, and coronavirus. Uh, I think this is more dangerous than all of them because because this goes to vulnerabilities of the party. It is not a mystery outside of China, but also inside of China, that the reason this spread like it did is because officials lied and covered it up. And, and did a bunch of things you're never supposed to do when you've got a, an illness starting to spread. And this is not a mystery. I mean, you see it on WeChat, you see it in domestic conversations. So the question is, how can they throw enough junior people under the bus, redeem the senior officials in terms of the, the, the wonderful response, and, and sort of redeem the party's role in this? And one of the things you're seeing and you're going to see going forward is China is already starting to sell itself as the global authority on pandemic control. You know, we'll help you out here. We don't need any favors in the United States. Iran, you want our help. Italy, you want our help. We're here. We show you how to do it right. It's a it's a clever narrative. Right. Um, it's ridiculous, <laughs> but it's a clever narrative. Clever narrative. Leela Miller, as always, we appreciate your commentary when it comes to all things China. We learned so much. Leela Miller is the chief executive officer of China Beige Book International, my go-to person for things on China, which is, uh, you know, you have to really dig under uh, the hood there.
A lot of questions surrounding the markets right now. A key one is how long will the effect of the shutdown that we saw in China affect manufacturers in the United States, will affect supply chains? There's no one better to talk about that than Brooks Sutherland, Bloomberg Opinion columnist cover, uh, joining us here in our interactive broker studios. I want to start with the data that we got out today showing that manufacturing declined more than people expected in the United States in the month of February. I'm trying to understand as people game plan this out, do we have a sense of how long it will take for supply chains to get ramped up, manufacturing to get ramped up once we have a sense of stability here? I do think with that ISM number, the headline is somewhat of a misnomer there, because if you look at what's bumping that number up, part of it is a lengthening out of delivery times. And typically, that's supposed to be a good thing. It means demand is so strong that suppliers are struggling to meet that. In this case, it is likely an issue with people just not having the parts that they need because they're not able to get them from various different parts of the world. So to me, this says that the worst is yet to come for manufacturers, that you'll likely start to see some of the aftershocks from the supply chain disruption later on in the second quarter. So correct me if I'm wrong, Brooke, but as I think back to the last, just a few weeks ago when we were in the thick of earnings, you know, other than Apple and maybe a couple other companies that were calling out the coronavirus as a reason to change their outlook, we didn't, or did did we hear much, if anything, from your industrial companies that you covered? No, not really, which is interesting because their earnings season came a little bit earlier. Okay. And so at that point in time, most of the outlooks didn't really include any impact from the coronavirus. Now, the exception was Emerson Electric, which did come out at the end of last week and said they're increasing their expectation of the revenue hit from coronavirus to as much as $150 million. It had been, you know, significantly lower just a few days before when they had held their investor day conference. So this sort of shows you just how fast moving this is. Um, now, I do think you'll probably start to hear some guidance updates from these companies in the coming weeks. Uh, you know, GE is set to report its outlook on Wednesday, and so certainly we'll be keeping an eye on that for any guidance there, particularly around the coronavirus. But, you know, I think the key issue for the manufacturing side is this supply chain disruption. But I do think you can look at some of these other companies as sort of a tell as to what we might see. I mean, if you think about a company like 3M, on the one hand, they make face masks, which are seeing <laughs> a huge spike in demand. On the other hand, they make components for the electronics industry. And we did have Microsoft come out and warn about supply chain disruptions for its Windows PC unit. Um, Honeywell is another company that makes personal protective gear, but it also supplies components to the aerospace industry. And that is a much bigger, much more profitable business for that company and I do think there's a risk of pretty significant um, downturn in aerospace. When you talk about supply chains, I just think about how China is trying to get everybody back to factories and demonstrate that they are ramping up production. How Do we have any precedent historically of how long it takes to get things back up and running and supply chains working as they had been? I don't know that we do, because I think what we've seen is that the response here has been so much more dramatic than what we saw with SARS in 2003. And part of the reason for that is that China didn't account for as much as the of the world's supply chain at that point in time. But I think about um, Cathay Pacific. So they've cut about 70% of their capacity. And I saw one analyst report this morning saying during SARS, that was 45%. So that's a really significant shift as you think about sort of the magnitudes of the response here and how we come back from this. But it's not just China anymore. Now we're 
we're dealing with Europe. Now we're possibly dealing with the U.S. and maybe even travel restrictions domestically. I mean, we just don't know. And if you start thinking about how you get parts from point A to point B, there's a lot of obstacles and a lot of unknowns. And so I think this is going to take a while for companies to bounce back from. So, Brooke, while we have you here, um, Boeing, I saw a story that they're out there hiring a lot of people for the 737 MAX. Does that suggest that they maybe they're close to getting this thing back in the air? You know, I think they want to be prepared because I think to shut down a manufacturing uh, line for an aircraft is a really significant step. For them to do that, I mean, they put that off as long as they possibly could. And that, a big reason for that was a concern about having the labor there to be able to manufacture the planes once they do restart that. And there's also a lot of steps involved here with once the MAX is ungrounded, you have to get all of those planes ready to fly again. We've already seen, um, you know, potential issues with that or Boeing said they've found you know debris in some of the fuel tanks whether that be like rags or you know sort of leftover tools and so they have to make sure that all of that gets fixed and you have to bring these planes out of hibernation i mean that takes time that takes people that takes effort so look i mean i think boeing is progressing toward getting this plane ready to fly but there are niggling issues that keep coming up and you know that may take a little bit of time to work through there was a report in the seattle times not too long ago about the risk of this timeline potentially slipping a little bit now we're not talking about major shifts like we saw over the course of last year but there is potentially a risk there what is the, the latest date do we have a date for boeing is stuck with mid 2020 okay. but what mid 2020 <laughs> okay. means right. maybe there's some wiggle room there in, in terms of your definition so all right thank you very much brooke sullivan thanks so much for joining us she covers uh, all things industrials for bloomberg opinion you can read her work, excellent work on Bloomberg.com slash opinion, or if you're on the terminal, O-P-I-N, go for books, work, and all the other work from a Bloomberg Opinion. Uh, she joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Well, despite the risk on field to the equity markets, Treasury yields continue to grind lower. We got the two-year down about 11 basis points to 0.84%, just extraordinary levels on Treasuries. To get a sense of where yields could go, we welcome RJ Gallo. He's a senior portfolio manager, head of the Municipal Bond Investment Group and head of the Duration Committee for Federated Hermes. Uh, they have about $11.7 billion uh, under management. They're based in Pittsburgh, of course. RJ, thanks so much for joining us once again. All right, so we the coronavirus is there, it's spreading, markets are trying to discount the impact. I guess one of the next uh, issues for the market to really get a handle on is when will the Fed cut and how much will they cut? What are your thoughts? Well, I think it's pretty clear that this central bank, under the leadership of Powell, as well as his most recent predecessors, have been eager to uh, be proactive in the, when faced with crisis or challenge. Yellen put off a planned tightening because markets got really volatile way back, I think it was in 2016. Uh, Bernanke cer certainly got very aggressive. He's the one who sort of pioneered QE. Powell, um, in 2018, tightened maybe more than the markets would have liked, maybe more than was perhaps needed at the time, and quickly reversed course. So I don't think they are inertial. And I think the statement that came out last week from Powell indicates that the Fed will move. Um, I don't know if in a textbook sense, everybody agrees they should move, but I don't think it hurts anything. Uh, they, they can't cure the virus. They can't produce a vaccine, but they can help cushion the blow economically by lowering short-term rates in such a way as to help bolster somewhat interest rate sensitive sectors 
that otherwise wouldn't get the boost from lower rates. So I think they are going to ease. The three eases, almost four eases that are on the WERP now, <laughs> seems extreme to me. But I know some highly respected uh, research firms, research areas in the marketplace, names that everybody knows, uh, suggest they're going to cut 100 basis points. So there, you know, there's your 425 basis point eases. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it'll be less than that. So, yeah, Deutsche Bank and Goldman Sachs, primarily among them coming out with analysts saying they expect four rate cuts or 100 basis points of cutting. I will just note that as you see stocks rally, the number of expected rate cuts is coming down precipitously uh, for year end now at just about a little over three full rate cuts by the end of January next year. So coming down, and I want to talk about that. How much do you think this erodes Fed credibility if basically stock sell off and everyone looks to them to just cut rates to prop up valuations. I mean, is that the single data point that the Fed is looking at at this point? I actually don't think it is. I, I think that the Fed cares very much about financial conditions. You all provide the, a financial conditions index. Uh, it's on everybody's terminal. If, have, if people have a terminal in front of them, um, it's now down negative uh, one standard deviation. Uh, the Fed wants markets to work. They want capital to be provided at reasonable prices. Uh, they don't want gapping or volatile markets uh, to, to present a headwind to economic expansion. And the Financial Conditions Index sort of looks at volatility and valuation and tries to um, you know, quantify, if you will, that tricky measure of financial conditions. And they've clearly contracted with all that's gone on so rapidly over the last couple of weeks. Um, it's not just the stock market. Uh, the high-yield corporate market's uh, certainly slowed down. I, I think a deals got pulled last week. There's no planned issuance at this point, I don't think. That's a challenge to the Federal Reserve's overall framework that they want functioning in financial markets. So the easing isn't just to target a stock price or avoid a loss. I think it's to make sure that the financial uh, flows in the economy don't grind to a halt. You, Twelve years ago, when the financial crisis was starting up, it's when those financial flows ground to a halt. When, when the provision of liquidity, when the transactions in repo markets, when the issuance of bonds ground to a halt, there was a clear sign of deeply challenging problems that the Fed needed to act to. I don't think we're there right now. I think that we have a more robust financial um, system right now, much better capitalized banks. Uh, sharp moves in markets are challenging for many, but financial prices changing does not beget a financial crisis. Um, the Fed's willingness to ease, on the other hand, is more looking at how the financial markets are sending a signal how the real economy will react in a public health crisis of a magnitude we have not seen. If this gets as bad as people think it might, a highly transmissible virus that has a mortality rate that's somewhere around five to ten times the influenza, which we deal with every year, um, there are stark steps that are being taken. Look what China did. They shut yeah. down cities worth 50 million people. The real economic consequences are very profound. So the Fed's easing isn't just to, to sort of blow the stock market uh, back up. It's, it's to try to cushion the blow from an economic standpoint of all of the measures that may emerge in the United States. As testing takes place, we're going to see many more cases in this country. And yeah. you're going to see school districts shutting down. You'll see less travel. Right. You'll see events shut down. That's what the Fed's reacting to. RJ Gallo, thank you so much for being with us. RJ Gallo, Senior Portfolio Manager and Head of the Municipal Bond Investment Group, uh, as well as the Duration Committee at Federated Hermes.
Let's shift gears a little bit, talk politics. Former Vice President uh, Joe Biden had a landslide win in South Carolina over the weekend. And of course, tomorrow is Super Tuesday. To put it all in a framework, we welcome Wendy Schiller. She's a professor of political science and public policy at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. Wendy, thanks so much for joining us. Let's start with Saturday. What really changed in the Democratic uh, Party on Saturday, if anything? Well, I think two things came out of South Carolina. One is the, you know, absolute importance of African-American voters to the Democratic Party's fate in November, but also to each individual candidate running. I think that was really evident. And the resurgence of Joe Biden. I mean, we saw him a little bit better in the in the most recent debate, and he won resoundingly. Didn't quite pass 50 percent. I think that would have been really, you know, the striking victory. But he, you know, really trounced Bernie Sanders in that respect. So the question is, does that pattern hold? going into tomorrow's primaries. Well, and there also was the development of Pete Buttigieg dropping out, Mayor Pete dropping out of the race and throwing his support behind uh, Joe Biden. And I'm wondering how much momentum you think that does give Biden against the Bernie Sanders ticket. I'm not persuaded that this is an automatic gift to Biden vis-a-vis Sanders because Sanders did well in Nevada, particularly it's a caucus state, granted not primary, but there are a lot of Latino voters in the Democratic Party in Nevada and Sanders did well with Latinos. So I'm looking at Texas, obviously California, Sanders is polling pretty well, but Texas is also crucial. If Bernie Sanders can show that he can get, you know, 40 percent, 50, 60 percent of the Latino voters tomorrow in some of these key states, I think that puts him in the conversation about leading this very diverse party to victory in 2020 in November and takes a little wind out of Biden's sails because it's not just the African-American vote. It's a a higher turnout among African-Americans. But certainly there are a lot of Latinos. And I think getting, um, you know, Democrats get about 74 percent of Latinos. Getting that vote and getting that vote up, I think, gives uh, Bernie Sanders some bragging rights if that's what happens tomorrow. So, Wendy, tomorrow is a Super Tuesday. A lot of delegates up for grabs. Who is it make or break for tomorrow? I think the the obvious person is Amy Klobuchar. So Amy Klobuchar is leading in Minnesota right now by sort of national aggregate polls, but she's not trouncing Sanders, right? Sanders isn't within striking distance. If for some reason Sanders wins Minnesota and she loses Minnesota, I think there's just it's going to be very hard for her to stay in the race. If you can't win your home state, ask Al Gore, circa 2000, when he lost his home state in the general election. You've got to win your home state. Same thing for Elizabeth Warren. You can make an argument about Massachusetts proximity to Vermont and Bernie Sanders population there, but she's got to come really close to winning, if not outright winning Massachusetts, to really make a claim that you can, you know, successfully compete at the national level for the presidency. Professor Schiller, given your experience working with a variety of politicians, and particularly serving on the staffs of Senator Daniel uh, Patrick Moynihan, as well as Governor Mario Cuomo of New York, I'm wondering from your perspective whether the Democrats are consolidating support enough early enough. In other words, What is sort of the make it or break it time when we have to see a certain degree of momentum emerging behind one candidate? Well, I'm not convinced that the, that they have to do that because we look at what happened with Trump in 2016. Uh, and, you know, there wasn't a lot of consensus there. He kept doing pretty well in terms of the proportional representation states earlier in the in the primaries for the Republicans and just emerged as somebody who they weren't going to be able to beat. That could very well happen with Bernie Sanders. So eventually, you know, Republicans unify, even if they say they didn't want Trump. By Election Day, they got out the door and they voted in a unified way for Trump. Democrats did not do that for Hillary Clinton. So the D-Day for 
for Democrats is always Election Day in the, in the national scope of things. But I, I just think, you know, Democrats have to decide if they don't unify, they can't win. So this is just going to be whoever it is, Bloomberg, Sanders, Biden. And Bloomberg also could benefit uh, from Pete Buttigieg dropping out if Amy Klobuchar drops out. Then, you know, creeping up and sort of being competitive with Biden, if Bloomberg can show that he can get some African-American votes tomorrow, in addition to Latinos, he becomes a viable alternative to Bernie Sanders. So at some point, Democrats are going to just decide, as Republicans always do, that they're just going to get behind whoever the candidate is. And we should note that uh, Michael Bloomberg is the founder and principal owner of Bloomberg LP and this radio station. So, Wendy, let's talk about uh, Mr. Sanders here, Bernie Sanders. Can he beat Trump? And do you think, do you agree with the concern that maybe he could actually hurt Democrats down ballot? You know, it's 2016 really sort of, you know, exploded all of our ability to to predict really the, the average voter's inclination, A, to get out the door to vote, which is something underestimated in terms of Trump supporters. And that's the magic ticket for Bernie Sanders if he can win. He wins with the same kind of strategy that Trump had, which is tremendous enthusiasm among his supporters. So, you know, people who like Bernie are getting out the door and they're going to make sure to vote. If he can actually, as he says in the debates, if I can expand that number of people who are really enthusiastic about me, he can sort of pull a Trump-like victory. I do think there are challenges to that for him in particular areas and particular swing states, but I don't think it's impossible to do if he follows that same playbook. And the thing to watch is African-American turnout, turnout generally in the primaries tomorrow among Democrats, but also African-American turnout in places like North Carolina. If turnout is high, even if it's because Biden's in the race or whatever reason you want to say, if people vote in the primary, they're going to vote in the general. That's usually what we see. So if Bernie can generate high turnout in the primary, He's got an argument that those people will still come back to the polls in November. So I don't think anything should be you know, counted out as a possibility. I think it's going to be harder for him to explain how he'll pay for things that he's promised to do. But enthusiasm is the number one you know, component of turnout. And that's Bernie Sanders has that right now amongst a decent size of the Democratic Party. Wendy Schiller, thank you so much for being with us. Wendy Schiller, professor of political science and public policy at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.